we're going through a series looking at the five solas of the Reformation, and I'll explain a little bit about what that means later. But uh, if you look in your bulletins, today's scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and you can follow along as it's being read aloud. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. This is a word of the Lord. As I said last week, what we did is uh, we started a series looking at what's called the five solas of the Reformation. And this is not typically a sermon series I would preach. But one of the reasons I thought it would be nice to do it this year is because this year marks the 500th anniversary of the start of the Reformation in 1517. And you ask, so why should we care about that? Well, uh, no church exists in a vacuum. No church uh, is kind of not influenced by history. And we have been influenced and we have been taught by Christian believers in the past. And in that sense, our faith and our beliefs is shaped by the fruit of their ministry and their teaching. And I thought it would be just kind of good to uh, see some of the fruit that came out of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, I gave a brief sketch about uh, what happened 500 years ago because I know not everybody's going to be familiar with the history of it. I'm not going to repeat that every week, but essentially let me just summarize it in one sentence. Uh, This movement started with uh, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther who uh, published a work known as the 595 Theses, and that set into motion a series of events that led to this movement of the Protestant Reformation. That's it in a nutshell course, a lot more complicated than that, but what I wanted to do in this sermon series is basically look at the important doctrines that came out of that period, out of that movement, uh, which are popularly known as the five solas. So the first sola is uh, sola fide, which we looked at last week, which means faith alone. Today we're going to look at sola gratia, which means grace alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone, and soli deo gloria, which means for the glory of God alone. And so therefore, the reformers, they would affirm this statement that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Now today, we're going to look at grace. And grace is one of those words that gets used a lot, especially in the Christian faith, especially if you've been part of the Christian church. And it's not a word that generates too much opposition because it sounds like a very positive word, but it's also a word that I think many of us may either fail to see the true power of or a word that we can easily misunderstand and maybe we're a little bit too uh, confident in how we understand grace. And perhaps some of you are thinking, you know, I can understand how one can fail to see the power of grace, but how does one misunderstand grace? And if you study a lot of the theological controversies in history that keep coming up over and over, 
the core issue is actually the perspective of grace. See, one of the reasons why people have had divergent views on what God's grace is and what it means is because people have ultimately had divergent views on the nature of humanity. And this passage is important not only because it teaches us about grace, but it also teaches us about humanity and the reason why we actually need grace. Verse 1, it starts off by saying this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, I want to pause there, and I want you to notice that Paul here, he is describing this human condition that we all have, and he's referring to the spiritual death that ultimately leads to our physical death. And you notice he says that we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses. Uh, There's a difference between being sick and being dead. You know, when you're sick, there are steps that you can actually take in order to get better. Uh, This past week, I I was battling a cold, and so I'm trying not to <clears throat> like clear my voice, but I have that ten- urge right now. Uh, I was battling cold this week, and what I did was I tried to drink a lot of fluids. Uh, I took a lot of vitamin C. I, I tried to get some rest, but that was hard to do with uh, two young ones. And, uh, you know, if things got worse for me, let's say my cold got worse, uh, what I could do is I could call a doctor, and this doctor could prescribe some medication, and I could take that medication, And it might make me better. And in one sense, I can say, yeah, the doctor made me better. But in another sense, I can say I was part of that process, right? Uh, I took the initiative to call the doctor in order to get that prescriptive medication in order to get better. You see, when we're sick, there are steps that we can ultimately take to try to get better. And not only that, but there are also degrees of sickness. Uh, A cold is a small sickness. Heart disease is a big sickness. And when we are sick, we can often measure our sickness by saying that we are Uh, more sick or less sick than other sick people. But you see, the category of death is is very different, right? Uh, The category of death, there's a finality to it. A dead person is completely incapable of doing anything in terms of taking steps to make themselves better. Moreover, there are no degrees to death. You can't be more dead or less dead, but you are simply dead. And so in order for a dead person to be made alive, the one thing we can say with absolute certainty is that the solution cannot come from the person himself or herself because that person is dead. They're incapable. They're unable to do anything to make themselves better. If there is a solution, it has to come from the outside of that person. Uh, If you've watched the movie Doctor Strange, which I I think you can stream for free right now, Uh, There's a scene in this movie where one of the doctors pronounces a patient who I think got shot in the head, uh, pronounces this patient to be dead uh, because there's no brain activity. And uh, then Dr. Strange, he looks at the chart and he says, this person looks dead, but he isn't completely dead and we need to get him to surgery. Stat. I I don't know if he actually says that, but something like that, right? And uh, the analogy isn't exactly precise because that person wasn't actually dead, only appeared dead, but we can say this, that even somebody who was mistaken for being dead can't do anything to bring themselves back to life. The solution has to come from the outside. Someone else has to come in and revive them and save them. You see, if you hear the message of of grace, the message of the gospel, and the assumption that you make is that you are sick, then you are going to end up having a vastly different conception of grace, right? You might understand grace to mean that you have been given the opportunity or you've been given the necessary tools in order to make yourself better, And that's essentially how God shows you grace. But if you hear the gospel with an understanding that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, 
then you are actually going to understand grace to be one of the greatest gifts you could ever receive from God because it's something that you could not even take part in getting yourself. And moreover, I think one thing you'll also realize is that it's a gift that you can never take credit for. You know, many years, uh, I don't know if it's still popular, but uh, it was very popular for uh, churches and ministries and Christians to hand out these little booklets uh, that told the message of the gospel. And there's this uh, one booklet a long time ago that illustrated the gospel by depicting somebody who was uh, in the ocean, uh, about to drown, crying out for help, saying, Jesus, help me. And Jesus, he responds to that cry, and he saves that person and gives him a life jacket and brings him back into the safety of the boat. You know, when I was in seminary, uh, I remember one of my professors saying that, you know, although the intentions of that booklet may have been good, it really failed to understand the true reason why we need Christ. It failed to understand the true reality of our spiritual condition. Because he said if he were to write that book and illustrate the gospel, the way he would illustrate it is this, that the reality of our human condition is that we are dead at the bottom of the ocean, unable to even cry out to God to help us unless he first shows us grace and revives us first and takes us from this place of death to this place of life. In other words, for some of us to even have the ability to seek God, that itself is an act of the grace of God. Martin Luther, uh, who I'll, I'll quote, I guess, a lot through the series because he was such an integral part of the Protestant Reformation, uh, he's often quoted as saying this, the human heart is curved within itself. And what he means by that is that uh, sin makes the human heart deeply, deeply self-centered. That means we're not only self-centered in our rebellion against God and when we do things uh, to displease God, but think about this. We are even self-centered in the ways that we seek God and try to do good for God. And that's a profoundly deep understanding of, of sin. That means that the only kind of people our society would label as quote-unquote evil or immoral, uh, who are self, we might label them as very self-centered, it's not just those people who are self-centered, but even the quote-unquote good people and the nice people and the moral people of society can also be very deeply self-centered. How so? It may be that much of the good that we do and much of the good that people do is driven by a self-centered desire. Maybe we're overly concerned about pleasing our parents, pleasing our friends. Maybe we're concerned about how people in church view us, and so therefore we act in a certain way. Maybe uh, we serve the homeless population and do these kind of outreaches because there is an inner sense of guilt in our hearts that we feel guilty because we have so much. And in order to appease that sense of guilt, the best way to do it is by serving uh, people who are less fortunate. And even though that externally is a very good thing and things that we ought to be engaged in, deep within our hearts, it's still motivated by self-centered desire. It's designed to make us feel good about ourselves. You know, I have a pastor friend, and he said that one of the things that he does in order to reflect on his heart is he tries to find the desire that lies beneath the desire. Uh, For example, he would say, you know, if you organize an outreach to the homeless and nobody shows up, are you upset? Why are you upset? What is the desire beneath that? Are you upset because maybe the homeless won't be fed? Or are you upset because you put so much work into organizing this thing and nobody wanted to go? How do we know if we're doing good? How do we know if the good that we are doing is ultimately self-centered? One of the ways we know is that when 
doing good gets too difficult or too inconvenient or too cumbersome, how do we respond? Do we respond in a negative way? Do we get angry? Do we get annoyed? Do we stop doing the good that we think we ought to be doing because it ceases to be worth it anymore? You see, that's, that's the problem with the human heart. It's, it's curved upon itself. And the best that we can probably do, apart from Christ, the best that we can do is fake it. Fake goodness. Uh, there's this article I read online recently, and uh, the title is called You Can't Fake It. And the writer, he lives in Brooklyn. Uh, he teaches at a college in Brooklyn. And he wrote this very humorous and insightful article expressing the frustration uh, with which he sees as a contradiction between our modern values and the experience that we have as it relates to modern values. Uh, so, for example, this is what he says. He says, We have intellectual architecture telling us correctly that physical attractiveness hierarchies are cruel and gendered and unfair, that judging someone by their looks is an absurd thing to do, and that cultural perceptions of what is and is not attractive reflect traditional bigotries and inequalities of power. And that's all correct. But we still care about being hot, and we still judge each other about it. And our theories and our papers and our humanities seminars seem entirely inadequate to the task of ending that condition. So you see, we uphold one value, yet our experience of it is completely contradictory to the value that we want to uphold. And I think this writer, he's more self-aware than the average person because I think he understands the inner workings of the human heart. He identifies that very source of contradiction that we are living in to be a sense of deep insecurity, which is the driving force of much of our anxiety and much of our unhappiness. And even though we're doing everything that we can to deal with this deep sense of insecurity, whether it's through our self-help culture, whether it's through social media's ability to project this idealized version of ourselves, whether it's this marketing strategy that tries to sell a better version of ourselves to us, he writes this, none of it has worked. None of it has worked. And in that article, he tells some anecdotes about people who look all put together on the outside, but inwardly they're so anxious and they're so miserable and they're so unhappy question for us is this why hasn't it worked okay why hasn't it worked did you notice something about all of these modern solutions uh, the self-help culture the social media this marketing strategy the focus is entirely on the self on the individual the modern narrative says the problem is that we don't make enough of ourselves and therefore the solution is we need to accept ourselves we need to love ourselves we need to put greater focus on ourselves But the biblical narrative says something entirely different. The biblical narrative says the opposite. It says the problem with us is not that we make too much of ourselves or too little of ourselves, but the problem is ultimately that we make too much of ourselves. We think we're sick, and therefore we think we have the ability to get better. We think we're sick, and we think, therefore, we just have to figure it out. We have to take ourselves to the doctor. We have to seek more therapy. We have to will ourselves to be better and healthier and happier and filled with greater joy. The Bible says something different. Paul says something different here. He says you can't do it. Power is not from yourselves. Power comes from outside of yourselves. We're not just sick, friends. We are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And we need someone to come and to revive us. 
That means the solution is not self-reliance. It's not self-will. It's not self-achievement. But the solution is the grace of God. That takes us to verse 4. You know, verse 4, it it begins this wonderfully long statement detailing how God is ultimately going to deal with this problem. And it's so rich that uh, it kind of needs its own separate sermon, but I'm not going to do that. What I'll try to do here is I want to hit on some highlights. First thing I want you to notice is it's a a very long sentence, and Paul tends to do that. It's kind of like a run-on. So it helps to parse out the grammar a little bit. So the first thing we can say is if you just look at the main verbs, what is the main point of what Paul is saying here? He's telling us three things. He's saying this, that God made us alive together with Christ, God raised us up with Christ, and God seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Notice the acting person is God himself. Second, God is a God who intervenes because verse 4 starts with these two wonderful, glorious words, but God. Those two words are so wonderful because it means that God intervened. He didn't just look at us dead in our trespasses and sins. He didn't just look at the world as broken, evil, filled with suffering and say, well, that's just the way it is. But the good news is he saw it and he decided to do something about it. Why? Because according to verse 4, it says this, because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, And this leads to the third point. We are saved by grace alone. Now let me spend a little bit more time here because this gets to the heart of what this message is ultimately about. We're saved by grace alone. You know, historically, grace has oftentimes been defined as unmerited favor. And what that means is that God, he has given you this gift of salvation even though you didn't do anything to merit it or earn it. Uh, And therefore, it's, it's a gift. But you see that that last phrase, even when we were dead in our trespasses, I think it it tells us that it's not enough to say that God showed us favor even when we didn't do anything to earn it. That, of course, is true, but I think God's grace is more than that. It would probably be more accurate to say that grace is demerited favor. What does that mean? Well, what is a demerit? It's a mark against you because you did something wrong, so therefore Let's say you're at work and you did something wrong. You said something offensive. Maybe you get written up by HR so that they can keep a track of your offenses just in case they want to fire you later on. That's a demerit. It's a record of wrong that stays on your record. You see, if God showed us favor and made us alive together in Christ Jesus, even when we were still sinners, that means that God showed us favor despite the fact that we committed offenses against him. An unmerited gift would be kind of like when you're walking through the streets of New York and you know how sometimes people just hand you a bottle of water and you walk by and you just take the bottle of water? That's kind of unmerited favor. You didn't do anything to earn that bottle of water. You were just there and you just received it. But a demerited gift, demerited favor would be this. If you went online and you blogged about this water company and you slandered them, and you made up false truths about them, and you said, this is the worst water company in the world. And then as you were walking by, and uh, as you were receiving the bottle of water, you spat in that person's face. And yet, that person still gave you water. That's demerited favor. God's grace is more like the latter than the former. And that's why God's grace is incredibly humbling and uh, floors us. But here's the other side that we have to understand about grace. Grace is a free gift that comes from God, 
But it doesn't mean that grace was not costly. And we have to remember that there is a cost to grace. Because if we don't understand the costliness of grace, then I don't think our, loves will, our hearts will be filled with uh, love and gratitude as it ought to be. You know, if I have 100 bottles of water and I give you one of those bottles of water, even if you spit in my face, it probably won't mean that much to you because I have so many bottles of water. But if I have one bottle of water and I give up that one bottle of water, even though it means that I will die of thirst, it changes your perspective, doesn't it? What did it cost God to, to show us grace, to give us this free gift? It cost him his one and only son. You know, it's nice that we are made alive with Christ, but we are only made alive because Jesus became obedient to death. You know, it's nice that we are seated with him in the heavenly places, but that only happens because Jesus first descended from his rightful seat in the heavenly places in order to hang upon a cursed cross like a criminal. Grace is free to us, but it was incredibly costly to God. And if we were sick in our trespasses, then maybe it wouldn't have to be so costly to God because then maybe we could have contributed. But we weren't sick in our trespasses. We were dead. And therefore, God, by his grace, he had to do all of the work in making us alive together with him by paying the very bill of our sin. You know what that means? You know what the implication of that is? There are so many implications, but let me just give you one that Paul points out here. One of the implications is this. No one can boast. No one can boast. If you understand grace, there is no room for boasting in your life. There's this uh, social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt, and he uh, teaches at NYU. He wrote a popular book that uh, a lot of people talk about a couple years ago called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And he doesn't use uh, the language of Paul, but uh, one of the things I would say uh, as I was reading that book, as he, as he pinpoints the problem as to why there is so much uh, division, even amongst good moral people, even amongst uh, intellectually, uh, I don't know, robust people, he says there is so much division because in our human condition, we have a problem of boasting. Either we boast in ourselves or we boast in the tribe, that's his language, tribe that we come from. And the heart behind that is a heart of self-righteousness. You know, if you think that you are fundamentally different or fundamentally better or fundamentally wiser or smarter or more enlightened than another person, chances are you don't take time to listen to that person and consider that perspective, right? That's, that's the problem with the moral high ground. If you've ever been in some kind of conflict or disagreement and you thought that you had the moral high ground, there's a good chance that you fail to consider the perspective of the other person because you didn't have to. You had the moral high ground. You thought you were better. The gospel says, well, the gospel doesn't say this. It doesn't say, well, in order to find some kind of agreement, shed your convictions of the truth of the gospel. In order to have reconciliation, shed your tr- convictions of the truth of the gospel. That's not what the gospel says. You actually need that in order to rid yourself of self-righteousness. But rather, the gospel says this. You have been saved by grace alone. You've been saved by grace alone. Therefore, your position, your status before God and even before others has nothing to do with how good you are, nothing to do with how wise you are, how smart you are, or how enlightened you think you are. It has nothing to do with 
your morally good behavior because you didn't do anything at all to merit God's favor. You were never on some moral high ground. And therefore, when you look at somebody who might be struggling with something, with sin, they might be struggling with believing in the gospel, they might be somebody who completely rejects the gospel, grace means this, that you cannot feel superior to that person because you were not saved by your own merits or your own goodness. That means we can't get frustrated and say, why doesn't this person get it? I got it. I understand it. I know it. I believe it. Why can't that person get it? Why can't you take that position? Because you don't get it because of you. You get it because of the grace of God, that God showed you favor. Let me conclude with uh, something that, again, Martin Luther said and link it to the final verse. Uh, Luther said that human love, it tends to be reactive, and therefore uh, we have a tendency of understanding God and looking at God through the lens of our human experience. And when we look at God's love, uh, there is a tendency to think that the way he loves us is reactive and he reacts to our beauty and our goodness and the good things that we do. But he says that's a wrong way to approach and to understand God's love because God's love is not ultimately reactive, but God's love is creative. Now, what does he mean by that, by saying God's love is creative? It means that God doesn't love us because we are beautiful, but God makes us beautiful through his love for us. Did you get that, the difference? God doesn't love us because we are beautiful, but God makes us beautiful through his love for us. You see, verse 10, it says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are God's workmanship. That means that we are, in a sense, God's canvas, like God's clay, and he shapes us and he makes us to be something beautiful through Christ alone, by grace alone. And therefore, how do we live out that beauty? Well, here's the idea of where doing good and good works enters in. I think the struggle that some people have when they hear uh, a message of grace is they say this, well, if it's just all by God's grace, what motivation do we have then to do good works? Motivation is not to earn God's favor. but The motivation comes in seeking to be who God created us to be and seeking to reflect God's workmanship in our lives. And uh, let, me, let me try to illustrate this with a very uh, crude, superficial understanding of uh, beauty, physical attractiveness. I want you to imagine for a minute that there's this fashion show and uh, someone worked really hard to prepare you for this fashion show and to make you beautiful. And so what this person does, they spend hours thinking about the clothes that will make you the most beautiful. They spend hours styling your hair. They spend hours putting makeup, covering your blemishes and highlighting uh, your features and they transform you, out, at least outwardly, into this very beautiful person so that you can go on this fashion show or so, so that you can take pictures and be on magazine covers. Let's say after that happens, you decide, I want to play football. It's raining outside. It's muddy outside. And you say, I want to play football. And so you play football and you get completely dirty. That would be a tragedy, right? That's not what you were beautified to do. You know, and again, a crude, superficial understanding of beauty, but 
You know what it means that we are God's workmanship and that He prepared good works for us to do beforehand? It means one of the ways in which we live out the beauty in which God made us is through good works, by doing good, <laughs> by serving, by loving one another. That's, that's how we reflect not only the beauty in which He made us, but ultimately we, re, we reflect the beauty of our Creator and our Redeemer, that He made us into His workmanship. Now, of course, God's definition of beauty is not so superficial, it's actually not even external. God's definition of beauty is in the ways in which we do good, in loving and serving others, in loving and serving Him. You see, friends, if you are a believer and if you have been saved by grace, one of the great, great, great things in the Bible, the very heart of the message of the gospel, realize this you have no reason to boast, no reason to boast, but you have every reason to live with gratitude and peace and security and joy, and humility, and you even have this strong motivation to do good works, even when nobody sees the good works that you do, because you live out how God created us and redeemed us to be. Let's pray together.